Good morning. My name is Carlos Griego. Um, you can call me Los. Some of you guys already do. Um, I am the minister here on staff at Desert Springs, um, overseeing the well, the college ministry, and the men's ministry. I am also, um, probably what you'll hear more of um, related to my name, is I am um, the person being sent out as a church planner to plant Redemption Church, um, possibly along with some of you guys. Um, and we will be planting that church um, in Rio Rancho uh, January 2012. And we are, um, as that's starting to gear up, I would appreciate your prayers for me and my family. Um, as well as just prayers that God would begin softening hearts in Rio Rancho and surrounding areas that uh, the gospel would um, shine brightly and transform many lives um, through um, redemption and through Desert Springs sending and planting the gospel in Rio Rancho. Before I came to work at Desert Springs, which was probably about three and a half years ago, I worked for the University of New Mexico basketball team. I was the video coordinator. Uh, simply put, AV nerd. Um, my job, the basic contents of my job during the season was, um, depending who we were playing, let's say we were playing BYU as our next game, uh, I would gather five or six games before uh, that they had played previously, and I would sit down with one of the coaches, uh, and they would pick out certain plays, and we put together a 10-minute little scouting tape to know how to beat BYU. Um, we'd know their plays, what each player, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were. The whole thing was just so the players could be ready. They could be ready to know how to defeat the opposition so, we could, so they could be equipped. Today we're going to see in Ephesians 6 that God has equipped us and readied us for battle. So if you want to open there, we will be in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. While you're doing that, let me give you a little context since this passage just comes at the end of the whole letter of Ephesians. Paul is the author. Paul is an apostle. He is a former persecutor of the church. He was a guy that hated Christians. He hated the cause of Christ. And he was um, passionately against the church, persecuting and killing Christians. And then one day as he was going to another city, Damascus, to kill more Christians, to persecute the church, Jesus knocks him off his horse, literally, blinds him, says, saves him, and says, I'm going to use you to bring my name to many nations, to many peoples. So he is a former persecutor, now turned leader, church planter. So he has a special place in my heart. Now Paul's letters to the people in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Rome. And it's a church that Paul very much loved. You can see the passion that Paul has for this church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, you see Paul's farewell. He has spent over a year and a half with the Ephesians. And as he's leaving and imploring this, I've preached the gospel faithfully to you all. 
I have not stopped proclaiming Jesus' name to each one of you. Be aware, there's going to be enemies that rise up within. This pastor then says farewell to the elders of the church, with tears involved, much love. That's important because this is not an ivory, theolo- ivory tower theologian just writing a letter, sending it away, say, read that here. No, this is a pastor who loves his people, who cares for them. And now we'll end this letter with a call to arms. But this is how he ends the letter. So what's the whole letter entail? Well, he starts the book by giving a beautiful picture of God's grace, of God's sovereign love for his people that was there before time existed. That he lavished upon us through Christ who rules all and is over all. He reminds us of our place. He reminds the church that they were dead They were following the prince of the power of the air. And it was by God's grace that they have been saved, not by their works, so that they cannot boast. And that they have been saved into a body that Jesus has destroyed all dividing walls. He says that Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, which at that time was everyone. You were the Jew or you were Gentile. That wall is down. There's one body, one humanity now, one man under the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. He says, in light of these mercies, in light of being brought into this family, into this body, live in light of this. It's going to affect your marriages. It'll affect your parenting. It'll affect how you handle your bosses and how you are a boss. He says, in light of who you are now, live that way. Be who you are now and not who you once were. He says, put on the new man that you already have, that is Christ. So he concludes all this now with a finally that is, simply put, a call to prepare for battle. So I'll read it, starting in, chapter, in verse 10 in chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's in prison writing this letter to them. And the first thing we see in verse 10 is the Christian's strength. Finally, he's strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong. This is a phrase that will go over well in the world. Be strong. Believe in yourself. Work hard. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the American dream. Make something of yourself. But to say in the Christian life, to truly say be strong and end up with that is neither helpful and is actually dangerous. Sam Storms, who was here a couple years ago for Claris, says the simple exhortation, be strong, is both dangerous and useless. Self-reliance and spiritual warfare is suicidal. Believers do not strengthen themselves Our strength must come from an external source, namely, the Lord. The strength of an earthly general is in his troops, but in the Christian life, the strength of the troops is in their general. See, Christianity is not a cry to be strong, exclamation mark. In fact, it's a cry that on our own we are weak, we are powerless. We are needy. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our call in any battle against sin, against the enemy, is first and foremost to find our strength in our Lord Jesus. As we just sang, he is our mighty fortress. Victory is already his. And that is where we are to find our strength. Paul has reminded them this. He has prayed for them to see his strength, to see God's strength. In Ephesians 1, and telling them what he's been praying for them about, he tells them, having the, heart, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Paul prays for this church and for us that we may see Christ's greatness we may see God's strength that is immeasurable so that we know what we must stand in when the battle comes. In fact, this is not just a theme for Paul in in the book of Ephesians. This is a theme throughout all of Scripture. Joshua 1.9. Maybe you have a magnet, t-shirt, bumper sticker, mug with this verse on it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. 
For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. They were in a foreign territory. And why can they be strong and courageous? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The psalmist, Psalm 28, verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. David, who many times found himself greatly distressed, says David was greatly as distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Guys, it's easy to want to run past this part. It's easy to want to get to the part with the armor. It's easy to go, oh, no, I want to know what I need to wear. I want to... I want to have the breastplate, I want to have the helmet, I want want the sword, I want the shield. But if we run past this verse, if we run past this truth that we do not stand in our own strength, Christian, that on our own we are weak, we just sang that, and on our own we're going to fail. The battle is over before it began. We must stand in the strength of our Lord Jesus. We must understand that he has brought us out of darkness and into light. He has, we have been raised to be up with him. And that our strength, our security comes from the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross. The cross stands firmly and objectively in our sights as strength, as love, power from God. Without that, when the waves of life hit, whatever they are, sickness, cancer, job loss, family turmoil, when those waves hit, we will be washed under. But as we cling to the cross, to the work that is finished, as we cling to His strength and His might, We may get hit a few times, but we will stand firm. We will stand able to endure. We will stand. Because Jesus is our king who lives and fights for us. He is our warrior king. He is mighty to save and able. That is where our strength lies. That is where we must stop before we talk of any battle, of any armor, is his strength. Secondly, we look at the Christian's call. Christian's call comes in two forms. Put on and stand firm. 11 and 12 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand. This is a rally cry. This is a prepare for battle cry. This is a general telling his troops to arm themselves, to be ready. They will take the field. It will be hostile and they will meet the opposition. This is not a call given during peace. This is a call to prepare oneself for engagement with the enemy. The Christian life is one of war. The question is, do you see that? Do you feel it? Do you know it? But Paul is quick to say this is not one against flesh and blood. This is a different kind of war. This is not a cultural war. This is not a political war. And this is not a war against others. Our enemies are not other people. We are to serve them and love them and proclaim the news of Jesus that they may be saved and brought out of captivity and into freedom in Christ. Our war is spiritual and it is against the devil and his forces. It is against the one who was an angel, a beautiful angel that said, I want to be God. And him and along with a third of the angels rebelled against God, against the throne, and were cast out of heaven. And now their aim is ferociously opposed to the kingdom of God and to those who stand for the cause of Christ, who are saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. His aim ultimately is to get us off the cause of Christ. He has already defeated. The cross has brought victory. And like Ryan says, already there's victory, but not yet have we fully seen it. He still roams around like a lion, Peter says. Yes, he is defeated, but he is still ferocious and he still wages battles against God's people. He's ruthless and cunning, smart. He's been doing this for thousands of years. So on our own, friends, we will not defeat him. On our own, in even his defeated stance, he is stronger than we are on our own. People of Ephesus knew this firsthand. This was not new for them. This was not a theory that they had to kind of think through. They had seen this in action in Acts 19. Paul was there. Through Paul, God was doing extraordinary miracles. Let me read it. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. These people in Ephesus, the whole, whole city knew about this. They knew about these men that said, hey, this is working for, for Paul. What's he saying? Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, in the name of Jesus. Okay, got it. They thought it was like an incantation. Okay, well, if I say it, then we'll make some money off this, and this will work out great. So they go to someone that's possessed. And they go, I drew you. In the name of Jesus, the one that Paul talks about. And it's just awesome because the demon's like, um, Jesus, yes. Paul, yep, heard of him. Who are you? And what happens? This one man goes out these seven and they leave naked and wounded. Impossible to defeat. Impossible to fight in our own strength. So in his strength, the Lord's strength, again, who has already defeated the the devil and his army. Ryan's going through Colossians and talks about a part of the authorities are now put in open shame by the cross. In his strength, we are to put on the armor of God. When, the, when Paul speaks of the armor of God, the people of Ephesus would see the armor probably in two ways. First one, this outline that you can, you can see it, right there. They're in Rome. Rome had the greatest army in the world. They would see soldiers daily heading out to the line to expand its boundaries. They would understand when it says armor, what that's talking about. That kind of armor, the armor of a soldier. They would also be reminded of a passage from Isaiah that speaks of the armor of God. Isaiah 59 Verses 15 and 17 says this. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. Sam Storms again says, God is himself a warrior fighting to deliver and vindicate his people. The supernatural armor which God himself wears has been graciously made available to us. In other words, it is the armor of God not simply because he gives it, but because he wears it. God tells us here through the Spirit, by the pen of Paul, tells us that the strength and the armor are his and that he gives it to his children to wear and to stand in. So we're to put on the armor of God. And the second part of the call 13 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm in the strength of the Lord, in the armor of God. We are to stand firm. We're not talking a cowardly defensive position. This is not just get the shield and just hide and hope until it's over. This is a call that the Roman army would, they were in their front lines, when the enemy came running at them, they would just stand as one unit. They'd have a line here and a line right behind them, a line right behind them, would have a shield up against the other guy's back so the guy couldn't go backwards. So they stood firm like a wall. So when he rushed the Roman line, it was like rushing a brick wall. We are to stand firm and not give up any ground. In fact, this is said four times in this passage to stand firm in the Lord's strength in his armor. You stand. See, against the devil, Christian, against a defeated enemy that is ruthless, cunning, and smart, we are not called to cower, nor are we called to run headlong into the fight. We are called to stand firm together as one unit. This is a battle that's ongoing. Withstand in the evil day. Evil day is understood as the time between the first and second coming of Christ, which we are in. We pray, Lord willing, that we are closer to the end of it. We are to still stand in this evil day as the war rages, as the enemy fights. So we are given strength, we are given armor, we are called to stand. Now we're to understand more about what this armor we are to put on is. It's number three, the Christian's armor. Stand, once again, stand. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Sorry. The belt of truth. The Roman belt was more like a leather belt with an apron. So it wasn't like the belt you can go get at Kohl's, you know, with, you know, the big old belt buckle. Um, I don't know, you can't, Kohl's, Western Warehouse. Um, I don't know, I haven't got one. Um, but, it, but it had an apron, it held the, held the sword, and the leather protected the soldier's thighs. It was the first thing you put on for the Christian, we are to put the belt of truth on. Truth is broken up in two ways. And it's the first line that Satan attacks in Scripture. First front that Satan comes at towards Adam and Eve. First way is, what do we know that is true? The truth of God. Who is God? What is he like? What is his character? What are his attributes? How has he... Ex- described himself and showed him to be in Scripture, in his revelation. And more fully in his son Jesus, who is the truth. This is, this is where the devil attacked Adam and Eve. 
God had put them in the garden, perfect relationship with each other and with God. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for you will die that day you eat it. So the devil comes in. Is that really what he said? You're not going to die. He just knows. He knows when you eat it, you're going to be like him, and he's scared of that. Attacked his character. Attacked who God was. We are to put the belt of truth on and to know who God has revealed himself to be in his word and in Christ. We do that as we stand firm and the lies come pouring in. Look what's going on in your life. Does God really love you? I think God's abandoned you. I don't think he's going to answer your prayers. Look what you did last night. Yeah, I don't think you should be singing right now. I I don't think God wants anything to do with you anymore. God is not hearing you at all. We go with the belt of truth and we go. This is who he is. He is love. He is near. He's revealed himself to be here. And we defend our position with his truth. Truth about God and then truth about us. They're related. As the devil comes in and says we are worthless. Or comes in and says, man, you've been pretty good this week. I think God really loves you this week. You didn't look at one thing on the internet, man. You've got extra love coming from God. Oh, you had a bad week this week. I don't think God loves you as much. Or what you do. You define yourself by what you do or what has been done to you. You're dirty. You're unlovable. You know what's been done. You know what your past was like. Both fronts. Whatever it is about us, we stand firm at the cross. What has been done to you does not define who you are, but Christ defines who you are. That God loves you, cares for you, is seen objectively as the cross stands before you. What you do does not define you. It's what he has done for you that makes you who you are. He has lived the life you were called to live, died the death you deserve to die, rose again, and brings you in as a son or a daughter into his kingdom. That's who you are. So we fasten that belt of truth on. Then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, the shield, and the helmet. These were only worn in times of battle for the Roman soldier. They were not worn during peacetime. They were only worn on the field as they prepared to engage the enemy. 
Paul's telling us to have this on at all times. Just another reminder that we are constantly in engagement with the enemy. Breastplate of righteousness for the Christian is God's righteousness that he gives us in Christ. See, I've heard this said, and I've even said it. Well, when you become a Christian, it's like you get a new slate, a clean blank slate. It's not true. When you become a Christian, you get Christ's righteous slate. You don't get a blank slate that you have to passionately try to keep clean and kind of try to keep blank. You get Christ's slate. So that when you're looked upon from God the Father, he does not see a blank slate. He sees Christ. As if you had lived the life that Christ had lived. And he loves you passionately. As a righteous son and daughter that you are in Christ. My favorite verse, I think people at the well might have it memorized, I say it so often. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. As the righteousness of Christ is put on us, as that is put on our, on our breast, on our breastplate, it will also change how we live. This is what Paul was getting. He's saying you're a new self. Earlier it says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When Christ's righteousness, when Christ is put on us, when the Spirit indwells in us, we can start to reflect truly who Christ is to the world. Because we understand the love that comes so we can reflect that love to others. Imperfectly, yes. But the righteousness is God's righteousness seen through Christ. Not talking about moralism. We just don't cuss. We just don't drink. No, but we love as Christ loved. We serve as Christ served. We sacrifice for our neighbors. We sacrifice for people in Africa. We sacrifice for people in Guatemala as Christ sacrificed with our lives. Here's where we get mixed up sometimes. Sometimes when I do this, we go down to get our breastplate of righteousness and we throw on the breastplate of self-righteousness. We're like, hey! Throw our chest out a little bit. Went to church five times this week. My neighbor over there, my neighbor's such a heathen. That's not it. That's not God's armor. That's Satan's armor. That's not going to give life that will actually destroy we are to put on the righteousness of Christ that brings humility and the character of Christ over us and through us. Next, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And the ESV study Bible sums it up well. It says, these shoes, 
Simply put, it's just the Christian's readiness to pro- pro- proclaim the gospel. Now, these shoes for the Roman soldiers, I mean, they were like Roman edition, hardcore REI sandals. <laughs> I don't hike or really do much outdoors, so I've only been to REI twice, and that was to get like a power bar. Um, <laughs> but from what I've been told, they sell pretty hardcore sandals. Um, but they were made to be mobile on rough terrain. And they were made to be able to dig in so you could stand your ground. And as you take the hits of the enemy, you can then start pushing forward. I just don't want to push myself off the stage. (laughs) For the Christian, this is the constant readiness to proclaim the gospel that we hold. The constant readiness, as Peter says, to answer the question about the hope that is within us when asked. Christian, do you know the gospel? Do you know the message that we hold so dearly that we say is everything for us? Or do you assume it? Say, well, I've been raised in the church. I, I believe it. I'm not quite sure if I can explain it or know it, but I believe it. For some of you that are in here going, Lois, I don't feel like I'm ready to proclaim the gospel. I don't feel like I could explain the gospel to my neighbor. One of the really cool things is um, one of our elders here, Tim Ragsdale, has a class, and I think he's starting to do it every semester pretty much, called the ambassador class. And it's just that. It helps to think through and help to train, help to equip what it means to proclaim the gospel, to be ready to proclaim the gospel. And if you're in a community group, or even with inside a group of friends here or with husband and wife. A good little thing to do I've done with some leaders from the well is just sit down with them and have them evangelize you. Sounds weird. But have them go share the gospel with you and you do the same. Ask questions. Sharpen each other. It'll do two things. One, it will give you more confidence that you are ready to proclaim the gospel. You are ready to share the gospel at a moment's notice. And two, it will remind you and wash you over the truth of the gospel that we stand so firmly in. And it will make us that much more soaked in who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives by proclaiming it to each other. So if you're a community group leader, that's my challenge to have your people do this week. Pair up and Proclaim the gospel to each other. So we fasten those shoes on. And in all circumstances, we take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now the shield was two feet wide, four feet long. About that size. It was made of wood. But over the wood would be a piece of leather that they would soak in water overnight. The reason they would soak it in water is for when they would be starting to march in the line and the opposition would get their, their arrows, dip them in tar, light them, fling them. The minute it hits the shield and it hits that wet leather, it does no damage. The shield just doesn't start on fire. It's made of wood, it would otherwise. 
For us, Christian, the shield is our faith that God has done what he said he would do. That Christ is who he said he was. That Christ has rose and does live. That our king lives. It's knowing that our king lives and stands victorious. That has already defeated the enemy. And that we serve a victorious reigning king. That is our shield. When the darts of the enemy come, and they come in many forms. One of my favorite movies, and I figured it was fitting for this, is Gladiator. Love it. It's about a Roman um, general named Maximus. And other than the actual story, if you want an idea of what Rome was like, it's actually a good movie. Um, but anyway, there's a general named Maximus. His troops loved him. He was a great general in the Roman army. Well, he goes into the, um, to the emperor. The emperor says, um, I want you to take over for me because the emperor knows his time's coming to an end. He says, my son Commodus, he's evil. He will destroy the empire. Maximus, you must become the next Caesar. It's a secret meeting. Maximus leaves. Commodus comes in. Dad tells son, you're not going to be leader. Son gets angry, kills dad. No one else knows about this plan except Maximus and Commodus. Commodus takes over as emperor right away. That's just how it naturally would have gone. Goes and has Maximus executed, or supposedly he thinks has Maximus executed. Maximus escapes, ends up a good while later in the arena as a gladiator, in the arena in Rome as a gladiator. One of the greatest gladiators. He's like the Michael Jordan of gladiators. I mean, they got Air Maximuses. Um, And so, there's a scene where one of Maximus' men sees Maximus and goes, Sir, you're alive! All the soldiers had thought he was dead. He goes, Sir, if I can go, I will tell the troops. I, I will get to the troops. As soon as I tell them you are alive, they will rise and they will fight and we will win. There will be no stopping them, sir. They know you are alive. The victory is ours. Friends, our king lives. Our king rules. Our king reigns. And one more thing about these shields. See, in this context for the Ephesians, as they heard this, they would not think of just one soldier. I think in our individualistic society, we kind of get in that mindset of just, you know, army of one, one dude. No, this was a whole unit. That's what made the Roman army so impressive. They acted as one unit. And what they would do, they would hold their shields up. Like I told you earlier, the other ones would push with their shields, the guys in the forward. And then when the arrows came, the front would put their shields down, and the ones behind would raise up, put their shields over the guys in front of them. And as the arrows came down, there would be a wall that you could not get the arrows through. Christians, sometimes we must raise our shields for our brothers and sisters. We must remind them when the darts come and they 
Their shield seems to be nowhere to be seen. We must raise our shields and take the arrows and remind them that our king lives, that there is victory, to press forward, to stand firm. If you are not in community here, if you are a lone soldier, man, you're leaving yourself so vulnerable. God has given us the bodies for at times to have the shield and put it over a brother or sister. With our shields, we then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Helmet, again, was only used for battle. Its importance of what it protected, I think, is obvious. For the, Christ, for the Christian, it is trust in our salvation. Trust in the finished work of Christ. That there is no more to be done. That, getting, that coming into church every Sunday does not get you a little more salvation. It is finished. You are in the kingdom. If you trust in Christ as your Savior... His work is given to you. His, your punishment was put on him. So when the devil comes at you, when the enemy rages, telling you lies about what else you need to do, or how you don't deserve God's love, how you are outside his love, how you deserve hell and nothing better than that, you can say like Martin Luther said, Amen, I do deserve hell, but Christ has lived for me died in my place and now reigns and where he is I will be too and you can proclaim to the enemy the words of truth from Romans there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things But who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. That's what you wear in battle. That's what we're sure of. That's what we stand firm in. And we have ourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is translated, it's the Greek word that means proclamation. This is the proclamation of the gospel. This was to be used as a small sword. It's to be used more in close contact when the enemy is hitting the shield and you just stab. This is how we pick a fight. As we push forward as a unit, this is where we pick our fight. Another favorite movie of mine was Braveheart. I figured it was also fitting. I wasn't going to be talking about Twilight and 
<laughs> it's like when the vampires and the werewolves. No. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> but it's like in Braveheart. You got the two that, you got the Scottish rebels trying to get free from the English oppressors. And on two sides, and they, the two captains, the two, two leaders meet up in the center trying to negotiate peace. So basically what it means is for the Scottish to say, we give up, you take over, and basically, you know, make us your slaves. So they're talking, and all of a sudden you see William Wallace riding out, and they go, William, where are you going? And he's got blue paint on, he's like, And I'm going to try to do my best Hispanic-Scottish accent. <laughs> William Wallace says, I'm going to pick a fight. friends the devil is not threatened by our good theology necessarily he is not threatened by even what we do in here on Sunday he's not even angered towards us having good marriages towards us memorizing scripture we pick a fight when we start to go in his realm and pierce it with light We get his anger when we go into darkness and we, by God's grace, free captives that were under his rule and bring them in to the kingdom of the beloved son. That's when we take a fight. That's when we use a sword. We proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to those in other unreached countries that have not heard, have not tasted, that are under the bondage of the prince of the power of the air, of the devil. And we go in there and proclaim freedom has come. We proclaim the message of the king as his ambassadors. Peter O'Brien says, what is in view here is not some ad hoc word addressed to Satan as though we speak against him and will defeat him. Rather, is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness so that men and women held by Satan might hear this liberating and life-giving word and be freed from his grasp. He knows the end is coming. He knows defeat has already been given. He knows that Jesus has already defeated death. We just sang with death. But he still fights on and has his prisoners. This is our mission, Christian, to go and proclaim. This is our sword we take with us to proclaim the gospel to each other and to others so they may be saved. It's to go and pick a fight. A soldier without a sword is a soldier who misses the point of being in the battle. A Christian who's not on mission misses the point of wearing the armor. As we do this, though, we will attract attention from the devil and his army. But as we do this, we now will see that our greatest weapon of all, the Christian's dependence, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This isn't related to one piece of armor. Instead, this must saturate every part of our lives. By the death, of, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are received the Holy Spirit. And in him, through him, by his power, we are able to pray. We are able to go to our Father. We are able to go to our General. 
Paul says we are to pray at all times in the Spirit upon his reliance, sensitive to his leading and his guiding. And even when we don't know what to pray, Romans says the Spirit prays on our behalf, even when we're like, I don't know. We're to pray on his power. We're to pray in all ways. So this is not some formulaic thing where get down on your knees, close your hands, head down, eyes closed. You journal out your prayers. You pray as you read scripture. You pray as you drive. You pray for the guy that just cut you off. You pray for the person you just cut off. You pray at work, not while you're not doing work, but you pray while you're doing work. You pray before you eat. You pray while you eat. You pray after you eat. You pray while you parent. You pray like I am as my trying to potty train my son. I'm praying a lot. Um, and you pray at all times and always because we are in constant communication with our Father, with our General. We pray, we persevere in prayer as we start to take the fight, as we pierce the darkness with light of the gospel. The opposition will grow fiercer and fiercer and fiercer. Those who God used mightily in church history who proclaimed the gospel people were saved from, they were the ones that faced the most torment if you read their biographies, most tribulation. We pray for our leaders as they lead this out. They would declare the gospel boldly. Pray for each other as we stand together in one solid line unit, moving forward, pushing each other, praying for each other. John Piper put it well. He said, prayer, and so often in the West, has turned into a bell for the butler. I need this. I want this. What about this? Can I have this? What about this? He says, no, it's a walkie-talkie in war. So we have constant connection to our general. So we have constant connection. <laughs> need support. Need backup. Need help. Overwhelmed. We're in constant contact with him by the power of his Holy Spirit. William Cowper, a Puritan, um, 17th century, said, Restraining prayer, restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer keeps the Christian ar- Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Finally, guys, the whole point of this armor, sum it up well, that was long. The whole point of the armor, three words, put on Jesus. He is truth. He is the truth. It's his righteousness that we wear as our breastplate. We stand ready to deliver his message as our shoes. The shield that protects us is our faith that he was who he said he was, can do who he said can do what he said he can do, and is, lives and reigns and rules, and that one day Satan will fully and completely be destroyed. We wear a helmet that there is no more condemnation for us who are in him. And the spreading of his name to our neighbors and the rise of the world and to the rest of the world is our sword. And it's by his interceding, his death, and his bringing us into his kingdom, by his life, his resurrection, that we can go to our father, no longer just as a, just as a soldier to his general, but as a son and daughter to his father her father.
put on Jesus. And after I pray, that's why you came in normal DSC standard time, you were probably a little late. And well, he's preaching early. We want to respond as a unit in song about our victorious king who lives. We sing to God and we sing to each other. And then we head on out. We love our neighbors. We love those around us. And by doing that and proclaiming the gospel, man, we go and pick a fight. <laughs>